We were riding along, and then a giant moose, giant bullwinkle steps out right onto the road. And just stares at us. And just stares at us. The person who rented us the bikes told us to watch for signs that the moose is upset. Its ears will go back, and its hackles will be raised. (laughs) Okay, so for starters... That's no help It's no help, because we have no idea what a hackle is. Or where the ears were (laughs) normally. Like, I don't know. Are they be- are they supposed to be further up front? I don't know. I, I don't know what a hackle is. What is. What's a hackle? I still do not know what a hackle is. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're heading to Alaska, the last frontier, to a national park that covers more than 3 million acres. With rugged mountains, glaciers, temperate rainforests, wild coastlines, and deep fjords, Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve. And not only does Glacier Bay have stunning scenery, but it also has an abundance of wildlife, sea creatures, land mammals, and birds that call this place home. In this episode, we'll talk about what it was like to take a boat ride back into the heart of Glacier Bay, where the massive glaciers flow from the mountains into the water. We'll also share a lot of information to help you plan your trip to this remote and very special place. But first, a few thoughts about our 100th podcast episode. Our 100th episode? I can't believe it. So why aren't we having champagne right now? Well, we could do that. Um, Yeah, we could not tell the listeners if we're drinking or not and then have them vote to see if... if See if we've been drinking or not. I think typically the vote would be yes, even though we never do. You know what? Also, we are getting very close to our one millionth download. That sounds like a lot. That's hard to believe. It is a lot. It's going to happen here soon, within the next couple weeks. Probably first week of December. Wow. Yeah. We were discussing what we were going to talk about on this 100th episode, and we were going to devote the whole thing to some some deep intellectual <laughs> thoughts about reminiscing. Where, reminiscing about where we've been and what we've learned and the journey moving forward. So, <laughs> but then the episode would be like three minutes long. Yeah, we, we had a, a couple of months to think about it, and we, we, we didn't come up with any deep intellectual stuff. <laughs> Nothing profound at all. No, no it's... Uh, Truth be told, we had a couple of bonus episodes in those first 100 that we didn't number. Mm. So this is actually our 102nd. So we just blew by 100. Oh, didn't, gosh, didn't Matt. even mention it. Just, <laughs> All right. Well, now that kind of just burst the bubble right there. When we started this, did you have an idea that we would do it for 100 episodes? No, I thought, honestly, we would do it for a year because we started in January of 2020. So we're going on three years. But I, I kind of thought we'd do the whole calendar year and then, ta-da, <laughs> that would be it. <laughs> yeah, why are we still doing this? It's kind of like a merry-go-round you can't get off. You I know. You know, you're waiting for the operator to shut it down and, and you can't get off. 
Well, I know. And I tell you one reason we're we're still doing it is because of all of the wonderful comments and, and emails and DMs and reviews that we've gotten. It's been, it's been really unbelievable and really heartwarming. Yeah, well, I think that is uh, why we keep doing it. We had an interview in the KU Alumni Association magazine a few months back, and, and, and the writer asked us, why do you keep doing it? And our answer was, whenever we get to a point where we think we're done, don't want to do it anymore, or just don't have anything else to talk about, we then we'll get an email from somebody that says it helped them plan their trip and, and make their visit to a particular park more meaningful. And so we're like, ah, we should probably keep doing this. Well, yeah. And the other thing that we love to hear that that was a surprise is when uh, when people write to us and tell us that we, we feel like, sorry. <laughs> this is the laughing and crying at the same time. I think this is what people like the most, <laughs> hearing you laugh and cry at the same time. I'm sorry, it just chokes me up every time when when people tell us that they feel like we're their friends. I think that's like the nicest thing people can say. Are you choked up because we don't have a lot of friends? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, is, what, is, what is choking you up about this? That, yes. And I don't know, just the fact that... Um, that we've made these connections with with people that we don't know, uh, so many people out there and in different countries. And it's been, I don't know, it's been unexpected. And it's been one of, I think, the most wonderful things about doing this podcast is that it has made our world so much bigger. I like so many emails start with, I just want you to know, I'm not a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> Which does kind of make you a little bit suspect if you got to say that in the fir- in the first line. Or I'm not a stalker. I'm not a stalker. Okay, we'll take okay, your We word. didn't think you were, but now we're not sure. <laughs> no, we have loved it, and um, it's really been it's been a fun three years. You know, we've we struggle sometimes with uh, everything. With pretty much everything, with what we're going to talk about. And of course, as you all know, with like pronunciation of some of the places. Uh, but yeah, it's been it's been a good ride so far. You know, we originally started it. We thought that this would promote our books, our, the four books that we've written. We thought, you know, we'll get a new audience because a lot of people... Um, haven't heard of our books, and a lot of people are really into podcasts. So we thought this is great. We'll we'll reach a new audience, and they'll buy our books. And then I don't know, somewhere in this three years, the podcast has kind of become the thing. Right. I, I don't think people know that we wrote books. I don't think they do either. <laughs> so so, <laughs> so we <that> completely part... <laughs> fail. Right. And and we keep doing it. <laughs> we've failed at the <laughs> at the reason why we're doing it in the first place, and we've done it a hundred times. <laughs> We just keep going back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So we are not going to talk for the next hour about, we're not going to talk about the last three years. We're going to talk instead about a very, very special national park that's dear to our hearts. And that is, of course, Glacier Bay National Park. And preserve. And preserve. Yeah, correct. preserve also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why did you choose this for our 100th episode, Karen? <laughs> 
Well, one thing that was important to us was this was our very first trip to Alaska, and it was our first Alaska National Park that we visited. So we had never laid eyes on Alaska or set foot in Alaska until this particular trip, this park. So it's very special to us in that way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of history with this park. (laughs) So I think you just wanted to do more History Channel. And spoiler alert, there might even be some Animal Planet. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say, look, if if by 100 episodes, the History Channel hasn't called, they might not. But I I think we're good. You just keep swinging, swinging at the pictures. Oh, I thought you meant called to tell us to cease and desist from calling (laughs) the History Channel. No, No, I've given up. That's (laughs) coming. I have given up on them calling me personally oh, to. Yeah, we're moving on to Animal Planet. We're just gonna right. we're gonna get, keep moving from show to show. They they can't cease and desist us from everything. Right. And the other thing I wanted to mention about Glacier Bay is it's more than just a national park. It's also a World Heritage Site, and it's one of the largest internationally protected biosphere reserves. Here we go. How about that? That's that's fantastic. (laughs) Can I just leave the recorder going and go rake the leaves? No, no. We have a lot to talk about. I I need you here. So before we get into History Channel, uh, let's talk about where Glacier Bay is. Well, it's in the southeastern part of the state of Alaska. It's west of Juneau, the state capital. And it's by the little town of Gustavus, which took us about two years to figure out the pronunciation of that town. (laughs) Gustavus only has about 600 people who live there. It's considered the gateway to Glacier Bay National Park. And it, it sits right outside the park. And it's about 10 miles from the little town to Bartlett Cove, right, which is where the, lo- the log sits right on the cove. There are no roads that lead into Gustavus from other towns. It's somewhat isolated. So to get there, you're either going to have to fly in or take a boat in. I thought this was fascinating. When we uh, went there, we flew from Seattle to Juneau. And then from Juneau, they actually flew flew a full-size passenger jet, a 737, from Juneau to the town of Gustavus, which is 48 miles away. Right. So the federal government subsidizes the airport in Gustavus as part of its essential air program. So there is one flight a day from Juneau to Gustavus and then back to Juneau on a 737. And I think typically, if it's still the same as it was, it leaves Juneau at four o'clock, takes people in, lands, loads people up, leaves uh, Gustavus at about 530-ish back to Juneau. So if people are going in the summer and they want to fly in, that's one way to do it. Of course, there are also, you could probably catch a little a little small air taxi. Yeah. And also, uh, since 2011, there's a ferry. It's the Alaska Marine Highway Ferry System with service from Juneau to Gustavus. So the, the trip varies in length depending on you know the specific boat they're using and, and the time of year, but it usually is about four to six hour trip from Juneau to Gustavus. Right. Which sounds pretty long since it's only 48 air miles. I know. They must have to go around a lot of things. I think they have to go around a lot of things. Some of the ferries make stops along the way. I just looked up, I plugged in the date, I think of like November 17th, just to see. And it was a five-hour trip, and the cost currently was $55 per ticket. 
Uh, the other thing people should know if they want to do this is that ferry does not run every day. So the ferry system in Alaska is a little tricky. We found that out. We took the Alaska Marine Highway all the way from Bellingham once up to Skagway. And all of these places that it stops and all of these ports of call, it doesn't stop and pick up every day. So you, you really have to pay attention to the schedule when you're booking. Does that mean we're going in a few days to to <laughs> Gus Davis? Is this something that I need to know? Do I need to pack for this? You know, it was very tempting when I saw that. But as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, and you already know this, Matt, is you really only want to go in, in the summer because most of the things are, are shut down in the park. The park is open, but um, but there's not a whole lot to do. Okay, good. I was I was a little worried about that. All right. So, Karen, I see on the outline that it's time for History Channel. I just want to say how excited I am to find out what fascinating history you have in store for us for our 100th episode. You know, Matt, I treat every History Channel with the same kind of enthusiasm and respect. Do you? Um, so the Glacier Bay area was the home of the Clinkett tribe of Native Americans for centuries. They lived in little villages inside the Glacier Bay area. But then beginning around 1700, this stationary glacier, this long stationary glacier surged forward and the ice flow overran their settlements. That's wild. Isn't that to, wild? To think about. Now, of course, this probably happened you know, inch by inch, it didn't happen like overnight, but to see this massive wall of ice just creep towards your village and, and knowing that it's probably not going to stop. Right. Like we got to, we got to pack up and find another place to go. And that's exactly what they did. So the clans dispersed throughout the icy strait and excursion inlet areas. Eventually they settled in the village known today as Huna, but Glacier Bay has always remained their spiritual homeland. Now, explorer Captain George Vancouver visited in 1794, and he found Icy Strait choked with ice. And Glacier Bay at that time was a barely indented glacier. So basically, Glacier Bay, there was no bay. It was just glacier. <laughs> Which is wild to think of, given that we did the boat tour, and it's this massive bay. And to think that not only was that all frozen, but it was... I mean, there was, there was ice up above that. Right. And the glacier was more than 4,000 feet thick, up to 20 miles or more wide, and it extended more than 100 miles to the St. Elias range of mountains. So it was massive. Yeah, just really mind-boggling. It is. But what's also mind-boggling is less than 100 years later, in 1879, when naturalist John Muir visited, he found that the ice had retreated 48 miles up the bay. And currently, just to give a, a sense of context, currently, the ice has retreated 65 miles up the bay. Yeah, so John Muir got to see part of it. Yes, yeah. he, he got to see a big part of it. Yeah. As you know, Matt, John Muir is famous, is probably mostly famous for his ties with Yosemite. But the single greatest adventure of his life was his Alaskan 40-day canoe journey in October of 1879 with 14 Indians and a Presbyterian missionary. Now, after the U.S. had purchased Alaska in 1867 from Russia, the sentiment in the lower 48 was that Alaska was a useless wasteland, right? The Russians had killed all the sea otters. There were no more good pelts to be had. There was no more money. 
But 12 years later, when John Muir arrived and saw the glaciers of Glacier Bay, he wrote about the magnificent shimmering glaciers in magazines and newspapers, and he basically gave birth to the tourism industry in just a few short years. He also wrote a book about that journey called Travels in Alaska. He was the original influencer. He was He didn't even know it. But right. he, he was the original influencer. <laughs> yes, way back then. I mean, he really did do a tremendous favor to the country, or actually the world, by making people aware of these incredible places. And once people see them, go to them, appreciate them, then they support the conservation of these, these places. Right. He is known as the father of the national park system because he he talked about these places and he advocated for their protection before anyone had ever even heard of them. Okay, so that's fascinating history. But Karen, I'm just curious. How did this land become a national park? Well, I'll tell you, Matt. There was another man who played a big role in the early days of establishing the park, and his name was William S. Cooper. He was a plant ecologist from Minnesota who came to Glacier Bay in 1916, and over several decades he returned many times to make scientific observations. And what he found so inspired him that he wanted it to be preserved forever. He wrote letters, he made personal appeals, and he suffered a lot of criticism for that. But it paid off in 1925 when Glacier Bay became a national monument. And in 1980, President Jimmy Carter signed the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, and it became a national park and preserve. And a good thing that Jimmy Carter did that when Jimmy Carter was president at at the end of his term. He wasn't a very popular president. He just lost the reelection to Ronald Reagan. And one of the very last things he did was he passed this act, which put a lot of Alaska uh, federal lands into the park system and protected them, which kind of at the time wasn't made a big deal of. But, you know, since we've been huge beneficiaries of these lands being available to, to people to go see. Yes, this act designated more than 100 million acres of federal land in Alaska, and those became national parks and preserves, designated wilderness areas, wild and scenic rivers, and more. That's all fascinating, Karen. So let's, uh, let, let's bring it up to today. If you're going to go to this park, when's the best time to go? Summer, summer, summer. (laughs) There's no doubt about it. This is not a winter park. So we'll talk about a few things that are, are very important. One is if you can stay in Glacier Bay Lodge, which is the only lodge inside the park, that would be ideal. Um, This lodge was completed back in 1966, and it sits right at Bartlett Cove. Now, it's only open from May 27th to September 5th-ish. Those were the dates this year. That's right. Yeah, we stayed in a... Just kind of a motel-like room, right? But it was in, in the lodge. Yeah, it was perfectly fine. Now the visitor center, interestingly enough, is also located in the lodge. It's on the second floor, and it is open daily from again <laughs> the end of May to early September. I'm sure it coincides with the dates that the lodge is open. Yeah, and we went there in mid-August, August 18th, actually, and it did feel like winter was coming. Yes, but we found, because we've also been to Alaska in July, we like to go then because it seems like the bugs are a lot less. Yes, <laughs> y- yes, there there is a window when they've had a couple of cold nights, it knocks the bugs down, they're not as bad, 
yet it's still warm. And I think that window, well, it depends on where you are in Alaska, but I think that's like early August because mm-hmm. we've been there on July 4th and the mosquitoes will carry you away. <laughs> they were biting us through our raincoats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but mid-August, they're not nearly as bad. And that year we went on August 18th. And you'll have to check the airline schedules now, but that was the last weekend of the summer that Alaska Airlines flew a 737 in and out of Gustavus. Yeah, I thought it was surprising that they didn't continue the flights until early September when the lodge closes. So that's definitely something you'll want to check. Now, on this particular trip, and again, this was our first trip to Alaska, we had a lineup of four parks. So we were visiting Glacier Bay first, then Wrangell St. Elias, then Denali, and then Kenai Fjords. I think that was a good combination of, of parks to see. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the the other Alaska parks, the Gates of the Arctic and Kobuk Valley, they're above the Arctic Circle. That's So that's kind of its own trip. And then Lake Clark National Park and Katmai, you know, those are off to the southwest part of Alaska. So I, I think this was a good way to hit four of the parks with a fairly reasonable schedule of, of getting to and from them. Well, exactly. These were the easiest parks to plan. Not a whole lot of logistics. um, And of course, not Glacier Bay, but the other three we could drive our rental car to. So, So we started out with a fairly easy schedule on this one. As you mentioned before, Matt, we flew from Seattle to Juneau. That was about a two and a half hour flight. And then when we changed planes and we flew from Juneau to Gustavus, that was a 14 minute flight. I know I timed it. Because I knew it was so short. It was actually four minutes into the flight. The captain asked the flight attendants to prepare for landing. I thought we were going back to Juneau. I know. It was so fast. And uh, we had reservations at Glacier Bay Lodge. And um, they have a school bus that picks up their visitors at the airport and takes them back to the lodge. So that's what we did. And then we had dinner. We had a beer out on the deck. And we walked down to the pier at sunset. And there was a park sign there, and we asked somebody to take our photo in front of that park sign. People probably already know this, but that was the one of the things we would do in every park is to get our picture by the sign. And when we were in the school bus earlier on our way to the lodge, the bus driver drove right past the park sign, which was miles away from the lodge. And we had our faces <laughs> pressed against the window like, no, <laughs> stop, stop the bus. We have to get out. Yeah. Fortunately, there was another sign on the dock. Probably for all the visitors who come by boat. So when you go to Glacier Bay National Park, you absolutely want to see the park on the water. That is the highlight of the park. And the National Park Service has an all-day boat tour. This is booked through Glacier Bay Lodge. So you definitely absolutely want to do this, unless, of course, you're setting off on your own in a kayak. We booked this, I don't know, a couple months ahead of time. You for sure want to get on their website and get tickets. That's right. Unless you want to do activities that really get you into the park, like backpacking or kayaking. I mean, this is the the main activity to do in the park for a lot of people who maybe aren't as adventurous to do those other things. So you don't want to get all the way there and then not be able to get on that boat tour. Now, the boat tour is all day. It runs from about 7 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. And again, it runs the same schedule as the lodge is open from the end of May to early September. Yeah, and it's an incredible boat tour. I mean, you see a lot on this tour. You see 
the glaciers, you see the mountains in the background with snow on them. Uh, you probably would see whales. We did. The sea lions, the brown bears, the seals, eagles, other rare birds like puffins. We saw a lot of puffins. <laughs> we did. The boat that we were on, I assume that it's kind of the same now. It's a 150-passenger high-speed catamaran, and it is fully enclosed. There's areas that you can go outside if you want, but if the weather's not nice, it's covered. There's heated seats, tables, large windows, so it's comfortable if the weather's bad. Right. I just looked at the current cost for tickets. This year, it was $244 per adult, and it was about half of that for a child's ticket, around 122 And that does include lunch on the boat. And it also includes, and this was what was amazing, it includes an interpretive ranger on board. Yeah, the ranger we had on our tour was fantastic. She had a lot of great information to tell us. Uh, she also had the passport stamps with her. So yes. you can... Uh, stamp your passport. Right. Just one note on this, if we forget to say it later, you you are definitely going to want to bring binoculars on this trip to Alaska to Glacier Bay, because a lot of the things you'll you'll be looking at from the boat and you'll be looking at uh, from a distance. So the binoculars that we had were pretty important. That's right. You can uh, probably borrow the interpretive ranger's binoculars. She had an extra pair, but I wouldn't count on that. You want to have your own pair. So when we went down the next day to start the boat tour um, at 7 a.m., it was, I remember it was a little drizzly and about 50 degrees, which seems to be really typical for Alaska in the summer. Yeah, we didn't realize this before we went to Alaska, but it rains a lot in in the summertime. It does. We thought it would be sunny and nice every day like it is uh, often here in the Seattle area, but that is not the case. And it's um, it's kind of important when you do a boat tour to be able to see where you're going. You know, we realized that later when we did a boat tour in Kenai Fjords, and it was so foggy and so rainy, we could not see a thing. The captain of the boat knows where he or she is going, (laughs) because now they have sophisticated GPS navigation systems. So they can still do the tour, but sometimes it's foggy. Right. Fortunately, the weather improved during our day out in Glacier Bay. Later on, it became sunny and beautiful. And so we did have some amazing views from the boat. When we did that tour, I was unsure of whether or not we actually would see any wildlife. <laughs> and we we pull away and we're maybe a mile out. Uh, and we saw one sea otter and the captain pulled the boat over and we were close to the sea otter. And I thought, well, that's our wildlife sighting for the day. <laughs> And, guys, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes later, there were sea otters everywhere. <laughs> there were. I I remember, Matt, you wrote in the book something to the effect of, if anyone had fallen overboard, they could have walked across otter stomachs all the way to the shore without getting wet. There were a lot of otters. A lot of yeah. otters. But what was so cool, we shared the same reaction as everyone else did, which was complete amazement to see these otters. You know, the first wildlife sighting, everyone was crowded at the side of the boat. Everyone was taking pictures. It was just such a thrill. And, you know, we didn't even know what was going to be in store for us the rest of the day. Yeah, so that's uh, that was kind of the warm-up, wildlife warm-up. Mm-hmm. 
So currently, all the boat tours travel up the entire length of the west arm of Glacier Bay. Now, over 25 years ago, the National Park Service adopted a management plan for Glacier Bay that divides the bay into two zones. So you have a motorized zone in the west arm and a non-motorized zone in the east arm. And when you look at the map of Glacier Bay, you can you can see what I'm talking about. But if you want to travel up into the east arm, you need to do so uh, via a human-powered vehicle, like a sea kayak or something like that. Right. So you can go up the east arm in a kayak, and then like the cruise ships, the tour boats, they can go in the west arm area. Exactly. Now, after Otterfest, we stopped just off South Marble Island to look at all the sea lions that were resting on these huge rocks coming out of the water. And it was such a show because I remember they were growling and showing their teeth. Well, first of all, sea lions are ferocious animals. I mean, these things, if they were land mammals, I mean, they would they would challenge the grizzly bears for sure for, for domination. I mean, these, these things are scary, scary animals. And they get up on these rocks to uh, dry off and just sunbathe. And what was interesting is there was a hierarchy of the sea lions. Like the biggest, most dominant sea lions were on the highest rocks and they weren't moving. And then as you went down closer to the water, you'd have the more juvenile ones. And then there were some in the water. And every now and then one would try to get up on a rock and another sea lion would just like almost take its head off. So it was pretty interesting to see that social hierarchy in play. It was. It was Animal Planet for sure. The captain stopped the boat and we were able to just watch them for for quite a while. It was really fascinating. Matt, did you know I'm already finished with my holiday shopping? You bought everyone a Rumpel blanket, didn't you? I did. 15 minutes on the Rumpel website and I was done. I bought your mom an artist series blanket. I bought the college logo blankets for the kids. And for our friends, I chose a variety of national park and NFL blankets. They'll never guess that their warm, durable, all-season blanket was made from discarded plastic water bottles. Built to endure the elements, Rumpel blankets repel spills, sand, stains, and odor, no matter where they might take it. So which one did you get for me? Well, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but I'll give you a hint. They now have a collection with Carhartt, two of our favorite brands partnering together. For all of you who are looking for the perfect gift, Rumpel is having a sale this week, and you can use the code DEARBF to get an extra gift with purchase. That's D-E-A-R-B-F. So if you want to make your holiday shopping easy this year, head over to rumple.com, R-U-M-P-L, and choose a blanket that everyone on your list will love. Yeah, so uh, sea lions, that was fun. Uh, Kept going up the bay. And then there was a tidal inlet just past Tlingit Point, and we saw two pairs of brown bears. Well, we actually saw one pair on the beach. We saw another pair up the hill a ways. And the two on the beach couldn't see those bears. So we could see this whole thing playing out. And those two bigger bears were coming down to the beach to shoo these others off. And that was the first time we had ever seen a brown bear in the wild. And uh, such a thrill to see those on the beach. Now, I think we mistakenly called them grizzlies when we were talking to Ranger Jane. And she explained the difference between brown bears and grizzlies. Jane explained to us that all grizzly bears are brown bears, but not all brown bears are grizzly bears, which was extremely confusing. So they're the same species, but 
Grizzly bears are considered to be a subspecies. They make the distinction of these two types of bears based on where they live and what they eat. Yeah, the ones that live in the coastal areas who have access to food like salmon are going to grow a lot bigger and a lot faster. And those are the brown bears. Right. Grizzly bears live further inland and typically don't have access to these um, marine food resources like the salmon. I got some of this information off of the Katmai National Park website. Large male brown bears in Katmai can routinely weigh over a thousand pounds in the fall. Uh, the winner of the Fat Bear Week contest weighed over 1,400 pounds. And it's interesting, Matt, because of course they don't have a weight to weigh them. <laughs> oh, they don't? They don't, have, they don't have a scale? I think this is an estimate. I think they are, they are winning mainly by photos. Uh, who looks the fattest? <laughs> so compare that to how much the grizzlies weigh, let's say, in Yellowstone National Park. There are no documented cases of grizzlies in Yellowstone, for instance, where they exceed 900 pounds. Right. So there's a huge weight difference between the bears that have access to salmon and have protein and are eating constantly versus the the bears that are eating berries and moths, let's say in Glacier National Park or Yellowstone. Right. And one thing I didn't know until I was reading this article on the Katmai website was that the inland grizzlies seem to react more aggressively to other bears and to humans. <laughs> yeah, we should just stay away from all of them. I agree. Regardless I agree. of color. <laughs> right. So just know, if you are in a coastal park like Glacier Bay or Katmai, they're considered brown bears. If you go inland to Denali National Park, they are considered grizzlies. There you go. That's the bear lesson for today. Well, there are black bears that are brown. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Don't even start with the black bears. <laughs> and then some of them are cinnamon, which are your favorite, just because you like cinnamon. Right. And then there's some blonde bears. And one way one way you can tell a grizzly or a brown bear from a black bear is that the grizzlies and brown bears have a huge hump on their back, and their back is sloped down to their rear end, whereas a black bear has more of a flat back and no hump. That, that's one of the key features. If you are trying to decide if you are approaching a black bear or a grizzly or a brown bear. And the black bears have bigger ears. Yes, they do. And yeah. a more pointed face. But they might not be black. They might not they be might black. Be they brown. might be brown. They might be brown, but they're not a brown bear. All right, let's move on to whales. We saw some humpback whales off of Willoughby Island. That was cool. We did see some whales. That's, that's always cool to see whales. We also saw a dead whale. It was on the beach. Park rangers said that animals in the park had been feeding off this whale for a few weeks. It was more of a carcass. How does that happen? Like I, I could see a few days. Well, we didn't see any animals at that whale carcass. It looked pretty much picked over. So I think at that point we, that we saw it, they were they were, they were over done. It. <laughs> they were done. <laughs> yeah. If I'm a bear, I'm flipping over rocks and looking for something a little fresher than three-week-old dead whale. What else did we see? We saw mountain goats high up on the cliffs. We saw a ton of bald eagles and lots of other birds. And we found out for the very first time in our lives uh, from Ranger Jane that people keep a life list of birds. I thought that was funny. Uh -huh. I thought that was humorous, that people keep a life list of birds. And <laughs> I have to be careful about making fun of this activity. 
because it's it's a serious thing. It is a serious People thing. People take and, this serious. Yes, they're they're and, life lists of birds. And be careful what you say right now because a lot of our listeners <laughs> I, have life lists of birds. <laughs> I know. And Sue of Dear Bob and Sue, she sent me a book that is your life list of birds. And so in, in the book, it's a checklist. I think I have Crow and Robin checked. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked at it again today. And, and it's funny because it has all the species of birds. And then it has checklists next to it, 10 columns, one through 10. So not only you don't just check it like, okay, I've seen that one, but you could check it how many times you've seen it. And then is there a place to write where you saw it and the date and all that? (laughs) There is. It's not just a life list. There is a birding journal section, a diary. And I'm only kind of half kidding because when I look at this, and I can understand how it happens. As I'm paging through this, I'm starting to get interested in, well, have I seen that one? And I could see how it can be addicting. Yes, I can too. Yeah. I want that book. No, no, it's mine. It's got <laughs> Crow and Robin already checked. And s- since I don't know if you've seen a Crow and a Robin, you, you can't. No, you have to have your own life list. Well, we could put Puffin in there because we saw a lot of Puffins too up in Glacier Bay. So but- I'm just wondering though. If I start my life list now, can I go back in this book and check the birds that I've seen from memory? Or does that not count? You have to have your life list with you. Well, here's the thing. It's a very similar question to if you go to a national monument and you get the stamp, but then later it becomes a national park, does the visit still count as you saw that national park? I don't know. It's kind of a gray area. (laughs) It is a gray area. I got to say, it's a little frightening when I look at this life list of bird book because I could get into this and then I have to take back every <laughs> every bad thing I said about people who do this, which <laughs> I have a lot of practice of doing. Yes. So I know how to do that. You can go back and edit the book one more time and take, <laughs> take it out. <laughs> All right. So we got off on the birds. Yes. So our destination for the day, our boat's destination was Johns Hopkins Inlet to get to the end of the inlet to see Johns Hopkins Glacier. Now, as we got to the front of the inlet, I was so surprised to see a massive cruise ship coming towards us. It was huge. I mean, it made our big boat look teeny tiny. And and that's what they do. They go in there. They, they spend like... A full day, mm-hmm. nine to 10 hours in there, and they stop at the different sites. Yes, and they also have a National Park Service ranger on board the ship who talks to them about what they're seeing and gives special presentations. I read that the ranger also brings a park stamp on board the cruise ship so those people can get the park stamp too because the cruise ships do not dock anywhere in Glacier Bay National Park, so they don't actually get off anywhere in the park. Okay, hold on. They have a park ranger on board, but they don't dock in the park anywhere. Right. So where's this park ranger coming from? Is the park ranger (laughs) on board the whole time? I don't think so. (laughs) I'm imagining. I I couldn't find this information that the park ranger takes a little skiff. Is that what it's called? Like a little um, motorized. Are you making this up? A a little motorized. A dinghy? um, A dinghy. Yeah. A dinghy. (laughs) You know, up to the cruise ship and then they let him on somehow. I don't know, but um, I'm sure we'll hear from somebody about that. Yeah, there's a long list of things in this episode that people need to email us about. 
Um, all right. So where are we at? We're, we're on a boat tour in Glacier Bay National Park. <laughs> so we continued on up the inlet to where it dead ends at Johns Hopkins Glacier. And I cannot even describe what a stunning scene this was. This glacier flows down a valley. It's flanked by huge mountains behind it. And it's this beautiful blue color, different shades of blue. And it's massive. What I wanted to see, I wanted to see a big hunk of the glacier break off and fall into the water. Calving. They call that calving. Yes. And we did see that. We saw a little bit of it, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because the distance we were from the glacier, you hear the sound, then you look and you've missed it. Right. right, because the sound got to you later, so you have to be watching. And then the other thing that I thought was really interesting, there was a fairly good-sized chunk that broke off, landed in the water. We heard it, and it was one or two minutes later before the wave hit the boat. And so you can just see it coming, and you think, well, it's not that big of a wave. Then it hits the boat, and it really rocked us. You know what I was reading, Matt? One of the dangers of being in a really small vessel, like a kayak, is that these big chunks of ice will will calve off underneath the water. Because, and I was going to talk about the size in a minute. So for instance, this glacier extends 200 feet under the water. So anyway, a chunk will calve off and then it rises and it pops up at the surface oh, of the water. And if you are in a tiny little kayak, there is a danger of it popping up right underneath you. Yeah, I... <laughs> I I think that would be my last kayaking outing if that happened. (laughs) I think so, too. So, yes, this uh, Johns Hopkins Glacier extends 200 feet under the water and 250 feet above the waterline. And it's a mile wide where we were looking at it. So it's massive. It's just massive. Also, from the distance we were, we could see a lot of ice chunks like floating around the base of of the glacier that had broken off before, little little tiny icebergs. And a lot of them were brown. It looked like they were dirty. And the park ranger explained to us that they weren't dirty. Those brown specks were seals. That's right. Yeah, and they that's their habitat. They hang out. Mm-hmm. I guess they, they're not worried about big chunks of ice breaking off and hitting them. They did not seem worried at all. I read that up to 1,700 harbor seals converge in John Hopkins Inlet every summer for pupping and mating. And for this reason, now this inlet is closed to vessels from May 1st to June 30th. Um, so I was reading the current tour schedule for the NPS boat, and it no longer goes up John Hopkins Inlet, and it no longer goes to John Hopkins Glacier. Instead, it kind of takes a right turn at a fork, and it goes up to two different glaciers. And I think the reason for that is because the seal population in the inlet has declined by 75% in the last decade. Was that due to motorized vessels? I guess. Uh, So now, if you book an NPS boat tour, you get to go up a different inlet and see two other incredible glaciers, and those are the Marjorie and Grand Pacific Glaciers. And I've seen photos of those. Those look every bit as spectacular as Johns Hopkins does. 
Yeah, that boat tour was truly the highlight of our visit up there. Oh, my gosh. And I know we've said this before, but two people um, who were born and raised in Kansas now standing on this boat at the edge of this massive blue glacier with seals in the water and and having seen the whales and the brown bears. You know, it was um, it was just a moment that you could weep. And I could now thinking about it again, because um, such a such a pinch me moment to see those kinds of things. And, and the good news is, even though we were there 12 years ago, you know, it's every bit as beautiful to all of you who are planning your trips now. Well, the next day, we still had another day in the park. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the next day, we wanted to go for a hike. And we so we signed up for the ranger led hike. And we were the only ones who signed up. Now, usually we don't like to do ranger-led hikes. We like to hike on our own. But we didn't have bear spray with us on this trip because, you know, you can't fly with bear spray. And we literally flew to Juneau, got on a different plane, flew to Gustavus, got on a bus. So we had no chance to buy bear spray. So for safety reasons, we decided to hike with the ranger because there was a lot of bear activity in that area. I know they had closed the beach due to bear activity. Yeah, we've learned since then that you do not want to be out on the trails in Alaska without bear spray. And the ranger that we had, Kevin Richards, he obviously had bear spray with him. So we felt safe in his hands. Although I did wonder as we were hiking, you know, if a bear charged us, is is part of Kevin's oath as a ranger to to protect his visitors or is it like every man for himself? No, I think you're I think you're instantly off duty <laughs> if, if, if a bear charges. I think so too. It is every person for themselves. Now he he would have uh, he would have helped us out, but uh, I'm sure he would you know, have. Yeah. If you would have tripped, maybe sprained your ankle, I think all bets are off. I think so, too. Yeah. So we hiked the Bartlett River Trail. It's about, I think, four miles round trip. It took us about two hours. And, and Kevin kept up a steady conversation with us the entire way. I'm sure it was to alert the bears that we were in the area. Yeah, and we didn't see any bears. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been fun to, to see a bear, although probably a little scary, too. But yeah, Kevin was a great hiking guide. And then... We went back to the Lodge, which is also the visitor centers there at the Lodge also. And he spent a ton of time with us. We had mentioned that we were going to go to all the national parks, and he had been to a ton of them and gave us a a lot of great hiking advice for other parks. He did, and even restaurant advice, and he was a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, this was still pretty new pretty early in our national park journey. We had only started about six weeks prior to this trip, so we knew nothing. And so he was incredibly helpful and very kind, too. Yeah. So that was great. We got to hike in the park. We also had a half day left, so we decided to rent bikes right there at the lodge. And we rode back into town where we had been picked up by the school bus when we landed. Yeah, we rode the 10 miles. And one of the reasons for this was... As I mentioned, we had had a beer on the deck the night before, and (laughs) it doesn't sound like a lot now, but the beers cost $5 each. And for some reason at the time, that seemed very expensive to us. So we thought we had this genius idea that we would ride into town, we would buy a six pack of beer for, you know, a very low price, pedal it back, and then we would have that for the rest of the trip and we would save all kinds of money. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was just an excuse to to go on a a long bike ride. So, uh, but as long as you're there, you might as well buy a six pack of beer. 
So we pedaled our way to the little market in Gustavus, and we learned a few things on that little journey, didn't we, Matt? We did. First of all, we found out that the town of Gustavus is tiny. In fact, they refer to it as the intersection. (laughs) Right. We also found out that the market does not sell beer, and the only place to buy beer, the liquor store, doesn't open until 4 p.m. every day. Yeah, so while we were waiting for the liquor store to open, we walked over to the water and we were treated to a show of a sea lion wrestling a halibut. That was pretty amazing to see. Yeah, well, they weren't really wrestling. I think the sea lion was winning. (laughs) The sea lion was winning, but yeah, that was crazy, the violence of that uh, little encounter. It was, and they were both huge, and they were coming out of the water and thrashing, and you and I were the only people standing along the shoreline there, and we were just like enthralled. We couldn't look away, but I was surprised. One thing I did not know at the time was um, how big halibut are. Yeah, it looked like two sea monsters fighting. <laughs> it, exactly it really like did. That. That's not even a joke. It, I know. It, we were in awe because we just didn't realize that there was just like something that violent happening in the water right there. Right. And to to make a long story short, the the sea lion did win that little that win. little wrestling yes. match. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, after that show and after uh, some more milling about, we did finally make it to the liquor store, only to find out that. Beer in Alaska is really expensive. The six-pack cost, I think, double what we would have paid for it in the lower 48. Yeah, we learned on that trip that everything in Alaska is expensive. It is. And uh, later, when we added up the cost of the beer and the bike rental, we realized that each beer ended up costing $8. That's right, which which was crazy because... It costs us a million dollars to get to the town of Gus Davis. <laughs> right. So it really wasn't about the beer. It was about the adventure. We wanted to see the town anyway. So, yeah, we, we talk about, you know, trying to save a couple bucks on, on a beer. But it, that, that really wasn't the intention. It wasn't. And we had kind of an exciting ride back, didn't we? Yeah, we did. So on our way back, once you enter the, the park area, there's this long stretch of flat road, and they call it Moose Flats. Now, when we rented the bikes, the bike rental person told us to watch out for moose along the stretch of road because they have been known to pop out of the woods and chase people who are riding their bikes through there. <laughs> yeah, which we thought, you know, after going in the hike and, and not seeing any bears, we thought, yeah, well, that probably won't happen. Moose isn't going to pop out of the trees. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> then a moose popped out of the trees. We were riding along and then a giant moose, giant bullwinkle steps out right onto the road. And just stares at us. And just stares at us. The person who rented us the bike told us to watch for signs that the moose is upset its ears will go back and its hackles will be raised (laughs) okay so for starters no help it's no help because we have no idea what a hackle is or where the ears were (laughs) normally like i don't know are they are they supposed to be further up front i don't know i I don't know what a hackle is is, what's a hackle i still do not know what a hackle is so we we stopped our bikes and we got you know we got off and we stood there and we watched him and he watched us, I swear we would still be there today yeah, yeah. if if a park ranger hadn't shown up in her you know park ranger vehicle and she was driving very slowly and it kind of scared the moose back into the woods. Yeah, my hackles went up <laughs> and my ears were back. <laughs> yeah, 
Visitors to Alaska are worried about encountering bears, but did you know that more people each year are injured by moose than bear? I did not know that, Matt, but I did read that if a moose is charging you, it's okay to run the opposite of what you're supposed to do if a bear is charging you. Yeah, and they also say, or get behind a tree. <laughs> I've, I've always questioned the get behind a tree strategy. Although if you get behind a tree, a bear can reach around and get you, but a moose is, can't. It can't reach around. So so I get that. So now you have an enraged bull moose and you've found a tree and you're <laughs> on the other side of the tree and, and then what? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they have a short attention span and he forgets that you were even there. I, I don't know. And, and hopefully we never encounter that because those uh, bull moose are huge. They weigh up to 1,600 pounds. And even the, the cows, the female ones, can weigh 1,300 pounds. So massive. Yeah, and they don't like it when you call them cows. They do need to come up with a different name for a female moose. That does not sound right. A cow? Yeah. Yeah, That's maybe that's why they're attacking people. Maybe so. And then that evening, we were walking around the lodge, and we came across a mother moose and her baby. And that was really an amazing thing to see. It was it was our moose day. <laughs> it was our moose day. So I read that moose give birth in the spring to one or two calves, and then those calves stay with them for two years. Yeah, and these moose, they had GPS collars around their necks. Yeah, it's interesting because researchers have attached these collars to cow moose in order to see where they migrate in the summer and the winter. I guess moose can swim really long distances, and some of them swim between the islands on a regular basis. So they do move around a lot. They don't just stay hanging out right there where we saw them. And those collars were big. They were. They, they looked were a little uncomfortable. They were huge. I, well, so that was a decade ago. Maybe they have smaller collars these days. But yeah. uh, I would think that they could put those electronics in a smaller package. I mean, because they were. It was a huge collar. It was. It looked. Yeah. It looked like it would be kind of a burden for those poor moose. All right. Everything you could ever want to know about moose. But the next day, it was time to leave Glacier Bay and move on towards the next park. Our flight out, again, we had that late flight out of Gustavus to Juneau, which was at about 5.30. And when we got to the airport, it was, for this tiny airport, it was a madhouse. Well, it was a madhouse because it was the last weekend uh, that Alaska Airlines was flying out. And so so there were huge lines of fishermen with all of these frozen boxes of fish. So the mm -hmm. TSA had all sorts of struggles with getting all, all of that cargo through. And yeah, it was... It was packed. And the flight was delayed by a lot so they could process all the people and all the fish. But fortunately, when we arrived in Juneau, we still had time to catch our next plane to Anchorage. But yeah, it was phenomenal. And uh, just a note, if you cannot get reservations at Glacier Bay Lodge, there are other lodges that you can stay in in Gustavus. Yeah, and those offer uh, things like kayak tours, uh, whale watching, fishing charters, uh, flight tours. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot, lot of other activities that you can do. Sure. And the other thing too is to note, you do not need to get a rental car in Gustavus because there is nowhere to drive to. Any of these lodges that you stay in will pick you up at the airport and they will take you back to the airport. And that's the only time you would need transportation. Yeah. Or you could rent a bike and just kind of tool <laughs> yes. around. Go get some beer. And go look for moose. <laughs> so Karen, how many days would you suggest people go? 
Well, when you're building your itinerary, obviously you need to allow for a day to get there. Um, So that would be your first day and then a full day for the boat tour. If you're adding other activities in, then obviously plan for those days. Like if you're going to do a fishing trip out or a kayak trip. But otherwise, I think you could head out, right? And and head back to Juneau, don't you think? the, The main thing is that Glacier Bay boat tour. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And also... I think it would be good to add to your trip uh, a couple days in Juneau because they have incredible state history museum. And I know that doesn't sound exciting, but this is a really great history museum uh, right there in downtown. So you want to see that. You, You also have the Mendenhall Glacier close by. I mean, that's close enough. If you're staying downtown, you could literally take a taxi up to the glacier. Um, and that's worth seeing. We, we have not seen that because the times we've been in Juneau, the weather's been so bad, it's been rainy, and it just wouldn't have made sense to go up there to to see the glacier when it was pouring down rain. But uh, that's a popular thing for people to do in Juneau. Absolutely. And that is one of the tough things about planning a trip to Alaska in the summer is the weather, because you just have no idea when you're booking your trip what the weather's going to be. Now, we are going to be doing maybe in January, an entire episode about park planning in Alaska, suggesting some itineraries, how to get from, you know, this park to the next park, how many days, just an overview, because we've gotten a lot of emails requesting that. Yeah. And if you haven't been to Alaska, particularly the parks, I I can see how it'd be confusing and a little bit intimidating as to how to plan a trip to these places. Um, And there are some tips and tricks. Right, right. And I'd like to go back to Glacier Bay because there's something new there, new since we were there. It's built right there on by Bartlett Cove, the Huna Tribal House. And it was built built after we visited there, and it was dedicated in 2016. Yes, and I love this story because this dedication of this Huna Tribal House marked the ceremonial return of the Huna Clinkett to Glacier Bay. So as we talked about, you know, back in the 1700s, these Clinkett villages in the bay were overrun as the glacier advanced. But soon after the glacier started retreating, the Huna Clinkett reestablished their fishing camps and their seasonal village inside what is now the park. So when Glacier Bay National Monument was established in 1925, all of the new laws and park regulations that were implemented led to this period of alienation and constrained relationships between the tribal people and the NPS. But in recent years, the NPS and the Huna Indian Association, which is the tribal government, they have worked together to reinvigorate these traditional activities. They've developed cultural programs for youth and adults, and they have amended some of these regulations to allow for a broader range of traditional harvests inside the park. So one of these projects was to build this tribal house. They gathered a team of clan leaders, craftsmen, planners, architects, and cultural resource specialists to build this in an architectural style that's similar to the ancestral clan houses, but bigger and more suitable as a venue where the community can gather. And it's a focal point for conveying the story of the Huna Clinket to all the visitors at Glacier Bay National Park. And there's a great video on the Glacier Bay website about the dedication ceremony, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Yeah, it gives me goosebumps just talking about it because it's like a full circle, bringing these ancestral people back to their homeland. Yeah, so that would be something cool to see up there that's new since we were there. 
Yes, when you look at the photos, there are all kinds of Indian art designs painted on on the tribal house. There are totem poles. It is absolutely stunning to look at, and I would love to see it in person. All right, we'll have to do that. Yes. Also on my list, Matt, <laughs> I'd like to take the Alaska Marine Highway Ferry from Juneau to Gustavus. And I don't know, I'd kind of also like to do um, a guided kayak trip up that east arm. I thought we were going to do that later this week. <laughs> didn't you? Didn't you? Weren't you looking at the website? You're planning the trip for you know a couple days from now. You know what? One of the problems with doing that, Matt, is right now it's is that whole day. Well, there. not just that, but the inlet is now becoming frozen over. And just one quick note: when I was reading some of the stories that John Muir wrote about his trip. When he was up there with with his Indian guides, it was October. And as they went back into the inlet, they were worried about being able to come back out because the ice was freezing around them. So they were literally breaking the ice as they made their way out. And that was October. So I think we're out of luck. I think we're going to have to wait till next summer. Yep. Good idea. All right. That's all for today. Thanks for joining us on this 100th podcast episode. Next week on our 101st episode, we have something very special for you. The episode will come out on Thanksgiving Day, but we know a lot of you will be cooking and eating. That's what you'll be doing, Matt. Not the cooking part, the eating part. So hopefully you'll get a chance to listen to the episode sometime over the long weekend. And mailbag exclamation point. (laughs) We'll finally be returning in December. We have a lot of great questions that we'll be answering, so you won't want to miss that one. And thanks to all of you for your wonderful response to our holiday gift guide. If you haven't had time to look at all the items we talked about on our episode, check them out at www.mattandkaren.com. And we'll put links to some of the things we talked about today on our show notes at www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com. Also, Karen, we're now going to open up voting Asking people whether or not we were actually drinking during this episode. So people can vote. Oh, boy. Where do do they vote? (laughs) 